Let me invite you to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. When I was a senior in college in the fall of my senior year, I had the opportunity to go up to Washington, D.C. to sit in the Supreme Court while arguments were being made uh, in a case over religious freedom. And uh, it was a pretty solemn kind of scenario. Once you walk through the doors, you're supposed to be absolutely quiet. And they, they sort of, uh, they're running people in and out of the room the whole time, unless you're there as part of a designated group of some sort. So there's movement happening, but it's like you're under absolute hush kind of a thing. And and uh, because we were there as uh, sort of a, an official delegation, we were on the front row uh, before an aisle, and then there were where all the legal teams were, and then obviously the justices. So it was a pretty serious uh, thing. And a friend of mine that was in the group, uh, we were seated next to each other, and we're going through the midst of these very serious proceedings, and and he sort of looks at me like he wants to say something to me. And I'm like, so I lean in to hear what he has to say. And he headbutts me on the front row. And I'm like, what are you doing? I mean, we're in the Supreme Court. And he just headbutts me and then sits back really, you know, like he's like he's having a good time. And I'm thinking, what is wrong with you? Right? It's like radically contrary to the context of what we were. Because there's something about that space that's supposed to be treated with a high degree of respect because of what's going on there. Uh, used, you know, the uh, used to be a trip every year to D.C. and and so I would go along with each of the boys. And one of the uh, really highlight places was to see the tomb of the unknown soldier, if you've ever been there. And there is an absolute demand of respect. And, and if you've ever seen the soldiers respond when somebody's being disrespectful, the seriousness with which they take what's supposed to be happening there. And the same thing is to a lesser degree is at the other monuments, that you walk past these places that are designating the sacrifice of people for our freedoms. And there's just something when you step into it, you go, this isn't a place to mess around, right? This represents serious sacrifice. Important virtues are being honored here. There's a, a sense, and I would put this in air quotes because it's, it's, I'm not using it in a biblical sense, but we, we sort of treat those places almost like sacred spaces. There's something hallowed about people having made important sacrifices or serious, important things happening that draw from us a, a kind of response because we understand what the normal, proper response in that kind of a context is. I take time to say that because I believe a part of what the problem at Corinth was is that the Corinthians had such a shallow view of the congregation of God's people that they could treat it profanely. 
and I'm using profane as in verses holy. They were treating it as if it was just a common gathering. It was something that you viewed only on a horizontal plane. So their selfish desires could be most important. They were viewing it as merely humans and excluding from their view of it actually the divine or vertical component of things. And Paul describes it as fleshly or carnal, that they would look at God's servants just as if they're simply uh, celebrities around which they might rally or against whom they might speak, or God's work as if completely subject to their goals and their methods, not necessarily under obligation to the master and what he says to do. Their view of it was, was profane. It was common. It had no regard for the sacredness of it. And Paul moves very directly to that point in the verses we'll consider today. He shows us why we should view the congregation, the assembly of God's people, as something that is holy and sacred. That when God's people come together, it actually creates, if I can use this phrase, a sacred space. Look at chapter 3 and verses 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in, really, among you. If anyone destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. You can see, I think, just from the reading of it, why I'm saying a sacred kind of space. He calls them the temple, a temple of God. And then at the end of verse 17, the temple of God is holy. That is what you are. And, and the problem there is that they, they had uh, in some way forgotten this. I am certain it was something that Paul taught them because he starts the verses with, do you, do you not know? And his Use of that actually 10 times in his Corinthian letters and only one time anywhere else in his writings is, is trying to press home the point of, Hey, you, you know this. I mean, don't you know that when you come together, you are God's temple? Did you, did you forget that? Have you lost sight of that fact? Did somehow that part of who you are get get overshadowed or excluded because you now are treating this uh, reality of God's people, you're treating it in a way that's radically different than that. It, It really wasn't being treated as God's temple. It was being treated as theirs. And they could do what they wanted to do, and they could they could build any way they wanted, and in fact, some doing worse than that. So in verses 16 and 17, if I could say it this way, Paul shows us two, two 
uh, striking realities as to why the congregation of God's people is so important. In verse 16, it's because it enjoys or embodies God's presence. Notice what he says, they are, right? Verse 16, do you not know that you are a temple of God? So he starts by talking about what they are. You are a temple of God. And I I think I referenced this uh, earlier, but I want to make sure we unpack it a little bit. This is the congregation, not the individual. In other words, he's talking about the assembly, not the person. And so please keep your place marked here, but I want to look at a couple other texts to help show the, the reality of this. Go over to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, please. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Because this temple imagery is used both of the congregation or assembly of God's people and also of individual believers, right? So, so what we need to do is recognize it's not an either or, it's a both and, but we have to be specific about what any particular text is talking about. And the plurals in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 are pointing to the congregational reality of being God's temple. Notice in verse 16 of chapter 6 in 2 Corinthians. 6.16 says, Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So you see the contrast there. He's he's talking about legitimate separation starting in verse 14. No binding together of believers and unbelievers. No partnership between righteousness and lawlessness. No fellowship, light and darkness. No harmony with Christ or Belial. What has a believer in common with an unbeliever in terms of the share that they have? And then he moves to this issue, the temple of God with idols. There isn't one. We are the temple of the living God. So so the church at Corinth is the temple of the living God. And that's in contrast to the idolatry around them and it's because God is in them and walks among them. He's, he has made his residence there, his presence with them. Go over to Ephesians chapter 2, please. Ephesians chapter 2. Another clear statement about this reality. Ephesians chapter 2. Jesus has established uh, a a way of peace with God through his sacrifice on the cross and open up the way of access uh, for us to him. And and notice starting in verse 19 of chapter 2. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. And having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. 
in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. You can probably recognize the parallels with the Corinthian passage because Paul had said already, there's no other foundation that can be laid than Christ Jesus. And here he's talking about a foundation and a building and the temple, and he ties it into who they are, the reality of what the the assembly of God's people is. It's actually God's temple. It's a dwelling for him. He dwells there. Those are the congregational aspects of it. Now, on your way back to 1 Corinthians 3, stop in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, please. Because here's an individual expression of this temple language. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and look at verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. So here he's talking about an individual believer and saying that you are a temple for God by the Spirit, right? Your body is a temple for God by the Spirit. So you have both congregational reference to being the temple of God and individual reference to being a temple of God. The thing they share in common is the person and work of the Holy Spirit, right? In, in 1 Corinthians 3, he says, the Spirit of God dwells in you. In Ephesians chapter 2, we saw you are a temple, a dwelling place for him by the Spirit. And the same thing is true about the individual. If the Spirit of God is in the person, then they've become a temple for God. He dwells in them. Right? And those two ideas are not opposed to each other. In fact, they, they fit together, right? Because think about it, if the church, the congregation is a gathering of people who are indwelled by the Spirit, right? The Spirit dwells in them and they all come together. The Spirit dwells in them and among them. So it's not, these concepts are not opposed to each other. One actually leads into the other, right? That, that the temple of God is the place where God dwells by his spirit. And, and that's true of individual believers who have been born again. And it is true of the assembly of those who have been born again. So the distinction in the passages can be recognized by the use of plurals and also the difference in the imagery. Did you notice in 1 Corinthians 6, he said, your body, your body. But in 1 Corinthians 3 and 2 Corinthians 6 and Ephesians chapter 2, he's talking about a building, right? He's talking about something that's being built up from a foundation. It's it's actually something that has to do with the gathering of God's people to be the temple of God in that way. Now, if you would go back to chapter three. So the word that Paul uses in 3.16 and 17, 
uh, is a word, and some of you may have uh, translations like this or like a footnote uh, in New American Standard for the word sanctuary. And the reason some of the translations do that is because there were two, two Greek words for temple, uh, at least two that are used throughout. One really sort of had something to do with the temple complex, if I could put it that way. And the other that had to do with sort of the inner part of the temple. So, so, and that's the word that he uses here, right? So, so when you think temple, uh, it would, it would uh, resonate in their ears, not of all of a sudden a picture of a big building, as much as it would the place of God's dwelling, the sanctuary where God dwells, right? It, it would be the place that God demonstrated or manifest, manifested his presence among his people, the place where people come into his presence, right? So it wouldn't be about the building. It would actually be about the presence of God that is displayed there and manifested there. It is the place where God has chosen to identify himself in a particular locale, right? And that's the thing we have to recognize. I mean, let's do a little theology really fast. God's omnipresent, so he's actually everywhere. So we're not talking about that God's someplace and he's not some other place. We're talking about where God identifies himself as being approachable. If you want to meet with me, you come to my temple, right? In the Old Testament, it was very much location. If you were away from the temple, like Daniel, you prayed toward the temple. If people wanted to come and meet with the true and living God, they came to the place where God had established his name in the temple. But when Christ came into the world, he had this conversation, remember, with the Samaritan woman, and she's saying, where should we worship? We say over there, you say over here. And Jesus says there's coming a time when it won't be about that place, but you'll worship in spirit and in truth. And that in spirit at least means you are able to worship because you've been born of the spirit, right? Because if you haven't been born of the spirit, you're flesh. Jesus had just taught that in John chapter three. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. So when he says you have to worship in spirit, it means you have to have been born again to worship. And, and he says the hour is coming. That's connected his cross work. He is going to open up the way of access to the Father and bestow the gift of the spirit so that we no longer think, okay, if I really want to get close to God, I got to go to Jerusalem. I have to find the holy place. That's why we don't talk about pilgrimages and bonus points if you go find some, some sacred place because there's some kind of magic connected to that. Do you know what it is? Right, Jesus said, where two or three gather in my name, there I am in the midst. When the Spirit of God in his people, they assemble, God dwells among them, right? He's here, and he's offered to manifest his grace to us in that way. 
I just quoted Matthew chapter 18 and verse 20, right? Jesus said, wherever two or three gather in my name, there am I in the midst. Let me show you at least a part of how that translated into the theology of the church. You're in chapter three of 1 Corinthians. Go over to chapter five. This is in a hard context of church discipline, which actually so is the one in Matthew chapter 18. Look at, look at verse 4, 1 Corinthians 5. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus. And I'm just going to stop there because I don't want to open up a can of worms that I'm going to have to take a lot of time to, to put back into the can, all right? The basic point we're looking at is this. Jesus, or Paul says, when you come together in the name of the Lord Jesus, right? That's, that's what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 18, that there's a kind of coming together which is different from other kinds of coming together. There's a kind of coming together that is coming together in the name of Jesus. And Jesus has promised to be there. Right? I will be there. And he is there really by virtue of the fact that he's poured out the spirit of Christ to dwell in his people and among his people. He has chosen to identify himself with the gathering of God's people. So, and I'm not saying we're the only, the only people to whom this applies this morning. Right? But here's what I would say we should be thinking. If you want to find God in Allen Park this morning, he's told you where he will be. I will gather with my people. They will be my temple. I will walk among them. That's, that's what the scriptures teach about it. And a part of the reason I started with my goofy story about the Supreme Court and reference to those other places is because the minute you walk into the Supreme Court, you're supposed to have some awareness of where you are and what this is. You go marching up to the tomb of the unknown soldier like you're going to just like a, a picnic and you're going to start throwing a Frisbee there. Someone is going to remind you very quickly about what this is and who you are when you come to this. And yet at times, uh, it's possible we've completely lost that about the congregation of God's people, the assembly. Right? We're, we're just thinking totally horizontal. We're not thinking vertical at all. And, and that's, that's why Paul says, do you, do you not know that you are God's temple? And, and then he moves to why they are that. Look at the end of verse 16. And that the spirit of God dwells in you. Right? They are the temple because of the Spirit of God's presence among them. As I said, the Old Testament was a chosen place, but the New Testament is a chosen people. That's the point that's going on in John 4. It's not about the place any longer. It's about the people. And, and what is pointed toward in John 4 is what the 
book of Acts unveils for us and what Paul is describing here. What Jesus was pointing toward was that there's no longer going to be a chosen place like that, that everyone has to go to on pilgrimages or gather in order to feel as if they're in the presence of God. But God was going to give us his spirit so that when we come together, we are aware that we're his temple, we're his dwelling place that Jesus comes to be among his people by the Spirit, that it's his people that is actually the embodiment of his presence in, in this world. And the Spirit's presence is what makes the congregation a temple or a dwelling place for God. Uh, I know I'm having you bounce around a bit, but go to chapter 14 for a moment because... Uh, this is clearly an aspect of understanding the nature of the assembly of God's people that we have to make front and center, not assume things. So look at verse 24, chapter 14, 1 Corinthians 14. And again, it's in a context that that has a lot of interesting things we could focus on this morning. I don't intend to. I want you to see the connection to the text we're talking about. Verses 24 and 25. But if all prophesy and an unbeliever, an ungifted man enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. Now notice what, what uh, the conclusion of that is. And so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. Declaring that God is certainly among you. Now, again, that's clearly not a statement of, of uh, abstract theology, right? He's not confessing God's omnipresence at that point. Because he could walk outside and say, certainly God is in this place. And he could you know, wander everywhere on the planet and go, certainly God is here. Because God's omniscient or omnipresent. He's actually describing the evidence of God's presence. That God had manifested his presence by what he was doing through his spirit in the conviction in this person's heart. Because God moved among the congregation to accomplish something, it caused the person to stop and say, certainly God is among you. God is here in a way that is active and we can see what he's doing. That's, that's, that's the New Testament expectation of the gathering of God's people. I have no reason to believe that that is something that we should leave in the rearview mirror and we should be content gathering just to sort of see our friends, sing us songs we like, have a good message, go on about our day. That it's actually supposed to be that we are coming to draw near to God in the hopes and with the expectation that he will do what he said, he will draw near to us if we draw near to him. That's, 
because we're God's temple. And I believe at times we struggle this, struggle with this. Uh, and I'm going I'm I'm to use like a big, broad, sweeping statement, all right? So just accept the fact that this is a generalization. Because of an anti-experientialism, right? And, and that cuts two ways. It, it cuts against the crazies who the more bizarre they get, the more they attribute that to God's presence, right? And some of us have been, I mean, I've been in, you know, uh, I've been in weird services before, right? Where people getting up and run, I mean, running up and down the aisles. I was at one where the guy would climb up the pew, I mean, run up the aisle and stand on the pew in front of you and be preaching right to the person in front of him. Wouldn't you guys love that, right? And the more... The more extravagant you got, the more it was the Spirit. Right? And, and I'd say people uh, can run the risk of ignoring what the end of 1 Corinthians 4 says when it says God's not the author of confusion, but of peace. Right? God's not present to produce chaos. But, but here's what can happen. Right? That can be so... We look at that and they say, this is the spirit. And we go, that's not the spirit. And we swing over to the other side as if any experience is actually wrong. And, and, and I've said this before and I'll, I hope, Lord, when I'll say it till the day I die. Uh, you're not a genuine Christian without some experience of the new birth. Like that's, that's actually something that happens to you. Like you're dead and you became alive. Regeneration is experienced. It's, if, you, if you don't have the spirit bearing testimony in your heart that you are the child of God, if he's not producing the cry, Abba, Father, right? A dead Christianity is not Christianity at all. And so sometimes our anti-experientialism will be, well, that's never happened to me, so it must not be valid. And we lock ourselves away into a formally correct kind of Christianity that might not actually understand the heart dynamic of Christianity, right? And, and, and the reality of it is at any given moment, right? I, I mean, I, I, I believe God's promise that he will meet with us, right? So I don't, I don't expect a cloud to come hovering down. I don't expect people to fall on the floor shaking. You know what I expect him to be doing though? is touching the hearts of his people, causing them to see the seriousness of their sin, the glory of Christ, the next step of obedience that they need to take. I expect him to be producing joy in the hearts of his people when they consider the gospel and we sing about it. And here's what I'd say is, it's, it's, it's quite possible that not everybody will have that same experience at the same time. So, so we can't gauge it in a fully 
like, okay, so I can put this in and measure it, and this will tell how much it is and how much it's happening. But that God would be at work among us, and it would be real, and we would know it, is a part of the promise of God that, that we need to, to trust in and rely on and, and bank on as we seek to serve him. And, and I think part of the tension can be because we have an inability, we have an inability to control the spirit and an ability to control normal operations. Right? I mean, we can plan the service. We can pick the songs. We can make sure all the stuff's in the right place for it to be done well. I can study the text. I can prepare the sermon. All that stuff, we can, we can control the normal operations of it. The thing I cannot control is what the Spirit's going to do with it. Right? I, I can't, I can't, I can't like find the faucet and go, you know, give us, give us a full dose today. Because the Spirit's work is like the wind. And the wind blows where it will, and you see the effects of it. And so here's the problem for us is we, don't, we, like, we like things we can control. <laughs> right? I, I like predictability. And, and, and here's what I'd say is, the, um, again, you go into two different camps on this. Right, mine would be I'm going to be really careful not to try and manipulate people to produce the effect that looks like the spirit. Right, so so it actually would be I can't control the spirit's work, so I need to be really careful not to manipulate people to try and get the thing I want. And and I think if we're honest, there are people on the other side of that who say I'm gonna I'm gonna do everything I can to produce what looks like it. And don't think, don't, here's, I'll, I'll, I'm going to be honest with you, right? I remember like 30, 40 years ago, sitting in hardcore fundamentalist pastors gatherings, telling you about how to start the service. And you got to pick an up-tempo song at the beginning because then you can get everybody into it, you know? So they're telling you to get peppy songs, like old gospel songs, you know, I was thinking deep as in, you know, that kind of stuff. I'm not, you know, they, they would, they would. They would try to manipulate the emotions of the people to create a feeling because that would make them inclined toward whatever. And, and, and basically, you know, most of us would go, if we go into, I, I'm a, I still end up sometimes in services that I feel like that, right? And you go there and you feel like you just step back into a time warp and you're thinking this only works for the people who still live back in the time warp. But then I also end up in other services and I'm thinking, man, I can't distinguish between the bass notes running in the spirit here. Because I almost can't stand still because of the power of the amplification that is having its effect on me and causing me to feel a certain way, right? Because you can hype people up 
and think you're pursuing the Spirit. And we have to recognize that. Right? We live in a culture that operates with mood music. You almost can't go anywhere without them trying to alter your mood through music. And most of us have surrendered to that culture because the minute we're down, we need something to pick us up. And it's like, I got to pop in the music. I got to do this. Or I got to do that. So we're manipulating people's feelings. And, and, and so sometimes we just have a hard time. Well, what's the difference between the spirit and that? And, you know, that's the tension. Because I'm not, I'm not in any way going to say to you that the spirit of God couldn't move through that guy who's wanting to pick the peppy songs. Or I'm not prepared to say that the place where I go and I'm like, that the Spirit's absent either. Because in both cases, there are there is truth coming out of some of those songs. And the Spirit doesn't use musical notes. He uses his truth. So I'm prepared to step back and go, I wouldn't want to do either way. You know, here's the thing we've got to say. Do I think God is more in dead? <laughs> like it's been a great service if nothing moves in my heart. The fact is we, we have to expect and seek and long for what God is doing. And, and here's what I'd also suggest we need to wrestle with is that sometimes we have come to disregard the conditions expressed in Scripture for the outworking of this reality. Right, I've quoted a couple times already, where two or three gather in my name. Right, that's, that's, not, that's not a cliché. Right? To, to gather in the name of Jesus is to deliberately and conscientiously approach the gathering on the basis of the merits of Christ, through the gifts of Christ, under the authority of Christ. I mean, we're gathering here in his name is the confession that this is his bride. It's his church. He purchased it with his own blood. He has the right to rule over it. He does the work through the body to build it up. And we're conscientiously saying, hey, when we come together today, this is different than any other thing you go to. Right? You don't go to the basketball game like this. You don't go to anything like this. But is that true? Right? Is it possible we just get so used to it and familiar with it that, that it's just another thing we do? And we don't treat it as it is the gathering in God's presence of his people through the merits and work of Christ in order to exalt him. And then we wonder why we don't have it be that in our lives. Because we've not approached it that way. We've not sought it in that way.
Sometimes it's because we quench the Spirit, and it's the Spirit's work that does that. So one of the most important truths that you can, I think, get is that God is not uh, to be manipulated. Right? So many times people have taught, if you just do A, B, and C, then boom, you'll get what you want. As if you can sort of, you can sort of program the Spirit's work. But the reality of it is that, that the Spirit uh, relates to us in this way. We can actually grieve him. We can quench his work. We can put him to the test. Right? And, and, and if we think that we can be doing all of those things and he still just has to show up and pour out a blessing, then, then we're not understanding the dynamic. I mean, it's, it's God's temple by the Spirit. It's not our temple in which God is our butler. Right? It's his, and we come on his terms with yieldedness to him and surrender. And James 4 is very clear that the comment about drawing near to God and he will draw near to you comes in the context of dealing with sin. Weep and mourn. Let your laughter be turned to mourning. Wash your hands. Cleanse your hearts. So, so I think it's not a stretch at all to take as an implication of that, that if we really want to approach God and draw near to him, a part of it would be a recognizing. And I don't, I don't mean in any way to diminish the seriousness of this, but if I could maybe get an image in your head, right? You're, you're walking into a very special place and you just came from outside and you know on your shoes there's mess. Like if you have regard for that place, you're gonna, you're gonna be taking care of that mess before you go in, right? You're not just going to tromp through in the mud and track it right across this beautiful, beautiful space. And yet at times, we're welcomed into the presence of God to gather with his people, to meet with him and worship him. And we've been walking through the mud of disobedience, the, the mud of neglect in our hearts, and we just go, right through the assembly. And we're not drawing near to God at that point. Right? We don't, remember Jesus, we don't need a full bath if we've been made clean through the work of Christ, but we do need our feet washed. And sometimes we're not drawing near to God in a way that is pleasing to God because like we sang early first song this morning, had I cherished my sin, right? We're just, we don't, we don't really care that we're walking into the presence of God because we don't care about our sin. And if we really understood who he was and what he did for sin to be removed and all the provisions he'd have, then we'd be going, Lord, I want to come before you with, with clean hands. 
I want to come before you with no iniquity cherished because I want to meet with you. I want to meet with you. So sometimes the problem, right, the problem is not, well, take that word sometimes out. The problem is never on God's side of the equation. Right? It is at times that we're not appreciating all that God has done for us in Christ and the privilege that's been afforded to us and therefore approaching the gathering in a way that, that remembers what it is. Do you not know? Right? That's the thing I have to hear is that's what Paul's saying. Do, do you not know? Right? This, this, is, this is God's temple. You wouldn't dare think of try, you know, just running into the temple, cherishing your sin. You, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't think of bursting into the temple of God without any thought of God. Only of who you're going to sing or what you're, you're going to do. You'd be going, God lives there. I'm going to see God. I'm going to meet with God. And, and that's what Paul wants them to recognize. So, so the, the, the assembly is incredibly important because it enjoys God's presence. Now look, if you would, back to chapter 3. Because verse 17 is, is really a stunning verse. And, and it, 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 it helps us see this point that God that the, the, the church is very important to God, not just because he lives there, but it also enjoys his protection. Look at verse 17. If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. So there's a warning in verse 17a. Right, the sin is if any man destroys the temple of God, and I think what what must be happening in this text is that this is taking it up a notch from verses thirteen to fifteen. Remember, in verses thirteen to fifteen, you had people building with either gold, silver, or precious stones, or wood, hay, and stubble. So they were they were building on the right foundation. They were actually building, but some were using materials that were not of permanent value, and so. When they come to the judgment seat of Christ, they will be saved, verse 15, but their work will be burned up. But all of a sudden, he steps into verses 16 and 17 and says, but there's some of you not building carelessly. You're actually destroying God's temple. You're doing something that is actually tearing down the house, which is a part of the way that the, the standard Greek dictionary puts it. The language of that destroys, you're tearing down the house. And it, it becomes clear as you go through the rest of the book of 1 Corinthians and into 2 Corinthians, that there were agents of Satan in, mixed in among God's people and and they were doing things that were aimed at destroying God's work. They weren't people who were being careless about their building. They were actively attacking and destroying the church. They were dividing the body. They were 
like leaven in the lump in chapter 5. Some were denying the resurrection in chapter 15, toying with idolatry in 8 through 10, uh, complicating the simplicity of the gospel in Christ, 2 Corinthians 11. They, They were people who were false messengers. And their sin was that what they were doing was going to destroy the temple. So look at the warning that's given in the next statement. God will destroy him. That's a contrast with verse 15. Look at 15. It says, last part of it, but he himself will be saved, yet so is through fire. Verse 17, those, but if any man does destroys the temple, God will destroy him. And in the first case, they're saved. In the second, they're destroyed. And so it's talking about eternal consequences to it. Now, that sort of raises the question, does this person lose their salvation? And my answer to that would be no. They actually never had it. Right? That, that, that they are revealed as being false servants of Christ. Uh, because biblically, I'll use the, the, the way we say it, right? A little aphorism, not all that glitters is gold. That's true biblically about professions of faith as well. In Matthew chapter 7, remember there's people who show up to Jesus in that day and they say, did we not cast out demons? Did we not perform many miracles? Right? So they were doing things for Christ. And Jesus says, depart from me, you worker of iniquity, I never knew you. Right, So they had no real relations with Jesus, even though they were saying they were doing things for Jesus. They claimed to be servants of Christ, but in fact, they weren't. And that, that shouldn't surprise us. Paul is going to come near the end of the second letter and listen to what he says in, in 2 Corinthians 11. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. You you, you hear the language there? Whose end will be according to their deeds. Put right alongside of that, if you destroy the temple of God, God will destroy you, right? The end is destroyed by God. Their end will be according to their deeds. What were their deeds? Destroying the temple of God. Such are false apostles, false servants, deceitful workers, and, and I think we can say that without hesitation because of what the scriptures say about what the work of the Spirit is in the life of a genuine believer. If a person is born of God, 1 John 4, 7 and 5, 1 and 2 would say they love God and they love God's children. 
right? So the new birth produces love for God and love for God's children. How in the world can that heart destroy the temple of God? I mean, to destroy God's temple, which would be God's and it's his people, would be absolutely the demonstration that something is wrong there. There's not love for them. There's not love for God. They're operating with a love for self. I mean, Jesus said that the authenticating mark of a genuine disciple is the kind of sacrificial love for Christ's people that Christ had for himself. So someone setting out to destroy the temple does not have the love of Christ. Right? That's, that's why you can say they'll be destroyed. It's, it's Christ's sheep hear his voice, John 10. And if someone turns away from the voice of Christ, it reveals that they were not a sheep because my sheep hear my voice and follow me. Right? That's what God says. So it doesn't matter. Uh, it doesn't, it honestly does not matter what the, how glittery the gold was or is. If someone sets out to destroy God's temple, they are revealing that they are a wolf dressed in sheep's clothing. They are a, an, disguising themselves as an angel of light when in fact they're a deceitful worker and messenger of Satan because someone who is genuinely a sheep, someone who's a follower of Christ, someone who's an angel of light would not be destroying Christ's bride, would not be attacking God's temple, would not be tearing down the work of Christ for which he died. So the, the, the seriousness of the warning is intended to, to stun and shock the heart of the person who might be getting pulled along with the wolf. Right? Because here, there, there are these wolves at Corinth who are trying to destroy the temple and, and they are leading people into that process. And when Paul drops this, hammer down. He says, listen, wake up. This is not a human institution you're messing with. This isn't having a fight down at the you know, royal order of water buffaloes about something. This is God's temple. You're messing with God now. Don't do that. Do you realize the stakes here? Don't set yourself against God because you'll lose and you'll lose for all eternity. I mean, it's, it's enormously important to recognize this because God's temple is precious to him. Look at the second part of verse 17. For the temple of God is holy, right? The temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. You're God's temple. That's the point, right? So the word holy here means that it's precious or set apart to God. It's something 
that is of great value to God. It's sacred to him. And that's what the temple is. Right? And, and, and so what we've got to do is, is fight the tendency in our day. And I think it's clearly not just a new problem. It's a problem that goes all the way back to, say, Matthew 7. Do you have a false kind of security that is soft on condemnable behavior and belief? Right? Because that's, that's what could be happening at Corinth. There are people doing things, and I'm going to use this in its biblical term, all right, that God would say are damnable condemnable. They will lead to destruction. And there are people tolerating it. Making room for it. Permitting it. Allowing it. Letting the the devil's messengers come in and destroy the church. And they must have had some kind of false, misguided sense of security of a believer that that was soft on it, right? So, so when I say a false sense, that is it's the kind that thinks if a person says they're saved, they're saved no matter what they do or believe. Right? It's just, I get to, hey, I get to make it up. I'm saved, so I'm saved. Doesn't matter what I do or what I believe. That's, there's never security promise in the scriptures for that. God saves those who trust in Christ, right? The seed of God remains in them so they cannot practice unrighteousness because those who are the practicing of unrighteousness are actually the children of the devil. I mean, it's the scriptures, it's not, it's not even really close to being a debate. The Bible does not give security of salvation to people who deny the doctrine of Christ or whose lives have abandoned the voice of Christ. It's it's, it's just, there's nothing to warrant it. And when we have that, then it makes us soft on the beliefs and behaviors which actually lead people to condemnation. And, And when we do that, we're forgetting whose temple it is. It's God's temple, and he gets to rule his temple, and he gets to protect his temple. He will not be trifled with because it is holy. It is holy, and we should recognize it as well. So can I ask you this morning, have you been born again? Do you know? Do you know that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Because He has opened the eyes of your understanding to see the glory of Jesus Christ as the only hope of salvation. And that you have seen that all of your righteousness is empty and vain. There's nothing you can do to save yourself. Only Jesus can save you. And and has the Spirit awakened your understanding to that 
and planted in your heart a love for God and for his people. Have you been born again? If not, then then you can be in the place where God's people meet, but don't confuse being in that place with actually being a child of God. Because clearly at Corinth, there were people gathering with the temple who didn't have the spirit, who weren't a part of the body of Christ. That's why they were destroying it. That's why they had their own ideas about it, because they didn't have the heart that comes from hearing the gospel and trusting in it and God doing that work in them. And if you know Christ, we should be asking ourselves, do we treat the assembly as holy or profane? Is this just a common gathering, just a regular event? Or is this God's holy temple? Is it something we're coming to seek the presence of God in anticipation of his work among us? Do we view it as holy? It's his. We're his. Do we conscientiously gather in the name of Jesus? Do we deal with the sin that prevents us from drawing near to God? Do we yield to the Spirit and seek his work among us for the building up of the body? What an incredible privilege it is to know. To, to know. Right? That, that, that this morning... I could awaken a a frail, flawed human who's been invited into the presence of God. And I could come with the expectation that he has said, I will meet with my people. And I will draw near to them if they'll draw near to me. And to know that as I come, I, I, I need, if I could just imagery, I need to clean those feet off. And here's 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us. And I can come through the merits of Christ knowing that I'm not walking in and he's going to look at me. Man, you messed up all week. He's going to go, come, welcome. Come to the grace that I've prepared for you. Come to have the work of the God, of God's word in your heart come to have the spirit stir your heart so that you're saying abba father come receive the gifts i have for you come to my temple and meet with me that's what we have that's what it is i hope and pray that we pray and hope like that. That that's what we're thinking when we're asking God to meet with us on Sunday. That's what our hope is when we, when we get up and come. Because if we just become a horizontal place of people coming and maybe having a good time, being encouraged, meeting with one another, but God is not here actively working, 
and to use the Old Testament term, then Ichabod has been written across the doorpost. The glory has departed because the glory of any church isn't its building, it's the presence of God. That's, that's the glory. Let's, let's pray. Father, please help us to love what you love, to have our hearts shaped by the truth so that we value what you value. We're nothing apart from Christ. Lord, we, we're branches. We need the vine to fill us with life, fruit-bearing life. We need the work of the Spirit to use the gifts to strengthen, to change. We cannot build the house. You have to build it. And so we pray that you would in Jesus' name. Amen.